Are you ready to ride? Join us on Saturday, October 22nd for the 2022 Campbell Law School Bike Ride. The race begins and ends at Raleigh Brewing Company. You can race a 10 to 12 mile course, a 50 mile course, or you can do a virtual course. The fundraising for this event supports Campbell Law School's student-led pro bono council and all of their projects. Ticket registration includes a 2022 bike ride t-shirt, a bib number, and a complimentary food and beverage at Raleigh Brewing Company. For more information, go to Campbell Law School's website. Thank you to this year's sponsors, Raleigh Brewing Company, Attorney at Law Magazine, Trek Crabtree, Raleigh Magazine, and Metro. Before the next episode of the Campbell Law Reporter starts, we wanted to let you know that Professor Campbell is no longer with the Community Law Clinic. She is now the CEO of Legal Aid North Carolina. But the information in this podcast episode is still very important, and we hope you enjoy it. At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email campbelllawreporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Welcome back, everybody, to another exciting episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. My name is Stephen Dinkle. I have the privilege to talk to somebody who is helping not only students, but many people around our area via the Community Law Clinic at Campbell Law. And I'm going to say Campbell a lot because that's who I'm talking to is Professor Ashley Campbell. Uh, Professor, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm so glad to be with you, Stephen. So tell me a little bit about your background. If uh, people haven't had the pleasure of meeting you and talking to you, um, how did you get to where you uh, are doing or your director position at the clinic and kind of give us a little bit of uh, your elevator pitch, <laughs> so to say? Sure. So Stephen, I graduated from law school 19 years ago from UNC Chapel Hill. I had a few different uh, types of legal experiences. I was a legal aid lawyer. I worked on staff at the North Carolina General Assembly. And then for 11 years, I was in private practice as a business and real estate litigator at a Raleigh law firm. In 2016, Campbell Law School decided to open the community law clinic, and Dean Leonard was looking for an attorney to lead that clinic. Dean Leonard and I knew each other through the work that we've done with the Wake County Bar Association, and he invited me to come over to Campbell. And so I came to Campbell in the summer of 2016 to set up the community law clinic, and I've been doing this work now for six years. That's awesome. And uh where, where is the, the clinic located? Is it, is it in the law school or is it somewhere else? The clinic is located outside of the law school, about two blocks away from the uh, building on Hillsborough Street. So it's walkable from the law school. It's also two blocks from the courthouse. So it's really conveniently located for students who are working here and are doing work in the courthouse. The 
uh, clinic was always intended to be outside of the law school because it is a community resource and we've always wanted it to be seen as a part of the community. And so we are over near the pit for those uh, folks who may be familiar with downtown Raleigh in the warehouse district. Very nice. And that's kind of, it's a, I wouldn't think about it too, too much, but thinking about it now, it seems like a really good idea because some people may assume, oh, I'm not part of the law school, so I can't come in or some sort of, you know, assumption based off of it being the law school. So I bet that opens up people to uh, not having to think it's like, oh, I'm, I have, that's where the, that's where the clinic is. Let's go in there. That's right. You know, the clinic really is a student staffed law firm. We are a law firm. We represent real clients with real legal issues and being outside of the law school shows the community and the students you know, the real significance of the work that they're doing here. Although it is a law school class, it is a course for which you receive academic credit. You're also getting this really terrific practical experience. It's very much like practicing in a real law firm. So being outside of the law school uh, helps the students feel um, as though it's a real uh, experience like they'll have when they begin practicing law as well. Yeah, I think that would have to be something that contributes to it being so it adds to the seriousness of what it is. It's not just a class. It's not just this hypothetical thing you're running through. This is real stuff you guys do. And so what exactly is the community law clinic? What do you, what do you guys do? Um, who do you help, et cetera? So our mission is to provide legal services to people who have experienced some hardship in their past and are now looking to for a brighter future. So we often receive referrals from local community nonprofits. So for example, if someone is a client of the Raleigh Rescue Mission and they are enrolled at a program in the Raleigh Rescue Mission where they are trying to find employment and stability in their lives, but maybe they have a criminal charge or a criminal history in their background, from when they were a juvenile or when they were younger. We know the data shows us that having a criminal conviction or even a criminal charge for which you were found not guilty can make it extremely difficult for you to find employment. The North Carolina legislature has recognized that as well. And one of the uh, big successes at the legislature over the past five years is around expunction relief. So Democrats and Republicans agree that this is really important, that we want people to work who can work. So going back to the hypothetical, the client at the Raleigh Rescue Mission may be referred to us to help us get the criminal record expunction so that then the client is in a better position to get a job. We also help people restore their driver's licenses for the same purpose, right? Helping people uh, transport their children to and from school, better stability for families, and also to find better employment. We do other types of work as well, but our, but our real mission is to be here for folks who are really motivated for change, and they've got some legal barrier that's standing in their way of that positive change. That opens up a, a whole bunch of different things uh, that could qualify for that, I'm assuming. But is there something that wouldn't qualify for what the law clinic does? Like the law clinic would say, we'd love to help you on these, these and these, but we can't do this. Yes, there are a lot of things, actually, that we do not do. Uh, we do not do anything that can be. First of all, all of our clients, let me say this, are low income. So it's important for students to understand who are listening to the podcast If you are acting as a certified legal intern, which means you are able to represent a client under the the supervision of your 
a law professor or a lawyer. Those clients must be low income. And that includes work in the clinic and if a student is doing a summer externship. So this is a question I get a lot from students. Let's say they go back to home to Newburgh and they're going to work in a law firm over the summer and they're going to become certified so that they can do some real practice under the supervision of a lawyer in Newburgh. They can do that, but all of their clients have to be low income. So the, I want to say that first, all of our clients are low income okay. in terms of what we don't do. We don't do anything where the, you know, the private market is representing folks. So we aren't going to handle uh, ca- personal injury cases or cases for which you can go get a lawyer to represent you on, on a contingency basis. Um, we don't do, you know, like if you got a speeding ticket yesterday, we aren't going to represent you on that. We're only working with folks who've got long-term sort of suspensions that need to be resolved. It, you know, we don't do family law. There's another clinic at Campbell that does do family law. Um, so there are many things that we do not do. Now, what is there a certain benchmark that, that qualifies somebody? You said you said low income. How do they how do they find out if they qualify for the services? Is that run directly through you or do uh, prospective people have to go through the county to go figure that out? We do an income screen. So our threshold is 200% of the federal poverty level. What that means is that one person can't have an income over about $20,000. So if their income is under $20,000 a year, um, and there are other factors that go into that income screen, but that's an estimate for you, um, then we can represent them. If they're over income, we can't, and we'll try to refer them to someone who can. Very nice. So you touch on a lot of different things that the clinic does. I want to go right into the first one. I think the first one that you mentioned was the expunging of people's records, if they have it, that could bar them getting employment. What does that entail? Is it, it seems like something that would be super, super complex and a whole bunch of research and seeing what's going on. Like what is expungement? Not just getting it off of your, off of your record. That's the ultimate goal, but what is it? So expunction relief means removing a criminal charge or conviction from the client's record. If they are able to get it removed, it is considered to be expunged and the client is lawfully allowed to deny that they were ever charged with that crime. So once it's been expunged, the client can basically say, I was never charged with this. I was never arrested for this, et cetera. And the entire record is destroyed. Now it is, somewhat of a complex analysis to determine the types of criminal convictions that are eligible for expunction. Let me tell you what we do, what our process is. So when a client comes to us seeking an expunction, we will first run a copy of their criminal record. We will then review their entire record. I'll tell your listeners, all dismissed charges are eligible to be expunged. Now, Many people think that when a charge is dismissed, which means I'm not adjudicated to be responsible for this, it's dismissed, that it is removed from your record. It is not. All dismissed charges remain on your record. If you are found not guilty, so if you have a trial and you're found not guilty, that still remains on your record. It shows as not guilty, but a prospective employer can see that you were charged with that. The data shows us that 33% of employers still look at your dismissed charges and your not guilties and often make adverse decisions about employment based on those as well. So the first thing we do when we review the record is we look for all of those not guilty and dismissed charges and we determine, hey, we can expunge these. So that's great news. Then we look at charges 
for when a person was a juvenile. So uh, when a person is was convicted of crimes when they are 16 and 17 years old, it is generally easier to expunge those. I'm not going to go into further analysis because it comes a lot more complex, but it's easier to expunge those. Then we look at their adult convictions. So do they have five misdemeanor convictions? Do they have two felony convictions? How old are these convictions? What are the convictions? Then you have to go through a complex analysis to determine whether those can be expunged. And it takes about four hours for us to teach students um, the complexities around expunction of convictions. But for purposes of your listeners, I think it's important to know that more things are eligible now than ever to be expunged. There was a big change to the law in 2020, but um, as a general matter, obviously violent crimes cannot be expunged. Certain very serious drug offenses cannot be expunged. Certainly things that require you to be on the sex offender registry cannot be expunged. So that's just a general overview. Um, Once we've done that analysis of eligibility, then the student begins preparation of the forms that need to be completed and filed to actually obtain the expunction relief. So the student will meet with the client, complete all the paperwork, have the client file, excuse me, sign the paperwork, then we'll file it. Sometimes a hearing is required and the student may attend the hearing. And sometimes the court will grant the relief without a hearing. Now, how something, uh, two things popped into my head right there. One was you kind of already touched on it. I was like thinking to myself, what the legislature probably has to play with this somehow. And I, I was about to say, what roadblocks has the legislature put in your way? Or I guess, what roads have they opened? Uh, it seems like they opened some avenues uh, in 2020 when you said the law was changed. Uh, but it's good to know that like, it's not just a free for all on, on, on everything there. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a serious thing, but that doesn't mean serious things are just automatically <laughs> wiped off. So that that's a Interesting. And that all comes through or that initial meeting, right? You get to kind of see what qualifies initially and and then move on through the process, correct? Yes. Expunction relief is statutory. So that means all expunction relief is something that the North Carolina legislature has agreed should be available to citizens in North Carolina, and they've passed bills to give that relief. As I mentioned before, This is one of those areas in which there is real bipartisan agreement. The Second Chance Act that passed in 2020 passed unanimously in both houses, obviously with both Democratic and Republican support. The reason expunction relief is supported by both sides is because what we've seen is that, you know, the Internet did not basically exist before the mid 90s. You know, there was no ability for employers and for uh, landlords to run complete criminal background checks on all people that they either employed or housed before the mid 90s. So this wasn't your your criminal background didn't haunt you prior to that time like it does now. What we've seen over the last 20 years is that the availability of comprehensive criminal background checks and the fact that they are used by almost every employer and every landlord has rendered hundreds of thousands of people unemployable and unhousable. And nobody wants that. You know, there was, if you were convicted of a crime in 1995 of larceny, that should not be something that continues to haunt you in 2022 and continues to keep you from being unemployed. 
those are often referred to as collateral consequences. That means these are consequences beyond the conviction, beyond whatever restitution you were ordered to pay, beyond your jail sentence, right? And we learn in law school that when you're punished by the court or by the judicial system, that's the punishment you uh, that is just. And once you serve that punishment, your punishment is over. Well, what we find is that's not true because of the ubiquity of background checks, this punishment follows people for their entire lives. And, and basically nobody thinks that's a great idea. Nobody likes the idea that somebody can't be employed for 27 years because of a misdemeanor larceny charge from 1995. And it, it almost brings up some, like where people are in essence probably feel tarnished. They've, they've done their time. They've done all the things that they need to, to help the community from, from the charge that they uh, were dealing with. But then they they still have this tarnished cloud over their head because of what happened eons ago. So I, I it's wonder. almost like a scarlet letter. Stephen, you're so right. You know, when we talk to people on the telephone, they are very emotional about what this has done to their lives. I mean, people frequently cry on the telephone when they talk to us and they say, this has ruined my entire life. What I did when I was 19 years old has ruined my entire life. I have children. I'm not the person that I used to be. I cannot move on. And when, when expunction orders are granted and you call people to tell them, um, again, they become very emotional and they are really disbelieving. And you can hear this sort of the feeling in their voice of realizing that they're now able to lay this down and move forward. It's got to be such a relief. I couldn't imagine that type of burden just being lifted from somebody. Like I just could, I just can't fathom. So that's just music to my ears when I hear that there's a resource for people, um, you know, who can't hire attorneys because sometimes attorneys cost money. And so that's it's, right. great, it's great to know that the, the law clinic exists for expungement purposes. But like you mentioned earlier, there's also the driving record scenario that you guys also deal with. Everything now is is about gas prices and stuff like that. So driving is on a lot of people's minds, but it's not just the cost of actually driving and what that may be. Some people don't have the ability to based off of what has happened with their license itself. So what does the law clinic do in regards to driver's licenses And you guys also had an event pertinent to that uh, earlier this spring. What we know is that 1 million people have suspended driver's licenses in North Carolina. 1 million. Wow. Yes. So there are 10 and a half million people in North Carolina. And of course, not all of those people are of driving age. So more than 10% of drivers are suspended at any point in time. Now, most people think that that's DWI. They think of DWI is what causes people to be suspended. And certainly people are suspended because of DWI. That is not the work that we do. And the majority of suspensions are actually because of people who get a ticket, maybe for speeding or failing to wear a seatbelt and and fail to appear in court, or they get that speeding ticket, they go to court, they plead guilty or are found guilty. The court assesses a fee and a fine, which as, as if you've ever gotten a ticket, you know, will almost always exceed $200, usually up to about $400. And if you've ever gotten a ticket, you know, they'll say, go down and pay this in the cashier's office. Well, a low income person can't afford that. In America, 50% of people cannot afford a $400 unexpected expense. 
so people are not able to drive because they failed to go to court or failed to pay a fee and fine. And so let's say that happens. Let's say you got a speeding ticket in 2010 that you couldn't pay. Well, what we know is that people continue to drive, especially people in rural areas, because there's no public transportation available to them. So people continue to drive. They continue to get pulled over. They continue to get tickets and all of these issues. And of course, at that point, they are unlicensed and importantly, uninsured. Mm -hmm. And all of these things continue to build up over time so that by the time people come to us, they could have 10 unresolved issues that they've built up over a period of however many years. We've seen people who have had a suspended driver's license for over 20 years. Wow. So what we do is we take the record, we review the driving record, we identify all of the outstanding issues that need to be resolved, and we begin working on all of those issues. So if a person has seven issues to be resolved in Wake County, that's actually a, not as difficult. Um, what we often find is that they have issues in multiple counties because most people drive outside of one county, right? So we have to work in multiple counties. Now, the wonderful clinic that we did with our law students in March was in Nash County. We served 60 clients who had suspended driver's licenses. Wow. So all of those clients came to the clinic. Each law student met with between three and six clients identified all of the issues keeping them from driving. And, and there were uh, five assistant district attorneys there that day, along with several judges. And the students negotiated directly with the district attorneys at this clinic and were able to resolve issues in three counties because that jurisdiction had was a three county jurisdiction. So the clients were able to get a lot of issues resolved in Nash County that day. Some clients, their records were completely cleared and they were able to go get their driver's license the next week. Other clients still had a few issues to resolve in neighboring counties. And we brought those cases back to the clinic and worked to get those resolved. So the students had an extraordinary experience because they were able to help a client restore his or her driver's license, which felt awesome. But then they were also able to get that really great practical experience of negotiating directly with assistant district attorneys, talking to judges and, and getting the resolution. And the students did all that work themselves. We, as the attorneys, were just there to supervise and help as needed. What sort of resolution comes? I know they want to get the opportunity to get their license back and restored. Does that mean that they're on like payment plans for the fees and stuff like that happens or are they waive? Like what sort of potentials could come out of that? It's a great question. So uh, typically when we're negotiating with the district attorneys, we're asking them to dismiss the client's failures to appear. So this is where the client didn't go to court. We're saying, are you willing to dismiss this? Sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. Sometimes the client may have to plead guilty to one issue to get another dismissed. But as it relates to the failures to pay, which is what you just mentioned, when the client owes fees and fines, North Carolina statutes allow a judge to waive those fees and fines when the judge determines that the client is not able to pay. Well, I already told you that all of our clients are low income. So we do an affidavit for each client, evidencing their income and their expenses and showing that they are in fact unable to make the payment. And then the court has the uh, ability to waive those fees and fines. So oftentimes we are able to get that relief from our clients. Sometimes the court will waive some fees and fines and the client has to pay the remainder. But our goal is always to get them either eliminated or reduced so that the client can resolve those. 
it's nice to know that the community law clinic is there on a, on a multitude of different issues because they're all connected. The tarnish and the cloud over the record can hurt them from getting a job. People got to drive to their jobs and that having the suspension can still hurt them from getting certain types of employment if they don't have licensing, all that, all that sort of stuff. They're all connected. And it goes into the third thing I definitely want to talk about is a new and exciting part of the clinic. You guys have partnered with the city about evictions, correct? That's right. We have rising housing costs crazy in this area. I'm surprised we don't hear more about eviction stuff, especially from the moratoriums that were going on during COVID. This has to be a pretty big whopper of a thing you guys are dealing with. We are really excited about our collaboration with the city of Raleigh. It is a testament, I think, to the good work that our clinic has done, that the city of Raleigh recognized that we were a good partner. And it also shows the city of Raleigh's commitment to addressing housing concerns for people in our community. Tolu Adewale and I, so Tolu is another lawyer in the clinic, and I both were housing lawyers at Legal Aid of North Carolina. So both Tolu and I have a lot of experience representing tenants in disputes with landlords. We have been doing housing work uh, since the beginning of 2022. So we're already doing some representation of tenants in landlord-tenant cases. This investment from the city of Raleigh is going to help us scale and grow that work. What you're going to see in the fall from the community law clinic is that we're going to split our clinic into two clinics. So students who have already registered will know this. They have either registered for the criminal law clinic. It's all under Blanchard Community Law Clinic, but it's it's either the criminal law clinic or the housing clinic. So the criminal law clinic is going to do some of the work we just talked about around expunction, driver's license, and some other court appearances or in criminal issues. The civil law clinic is going to work on this housing justice project that we are talking about now. So what they're going to be doing is representing tenants who are either in active um, eviction with their landlords or who are, uh, you know, threatened with losing their housing. My approach is that, you know, we represent one party in a litigation. We do not sort of demonize landlords. You know, landlords um, are important in our community. They provide housing to, to people throughout our community. We view them as just a party on the other side of the V. And our goal and our approach is always to try to be collaborative first. So when a tenant comes to us and they're threatened with eviction and we think they have a case that is a, um, a valid case, we're going to reach out to the landlord and see if we can reach some type of resolution. Um, if that's possible, that's what we're going to do. So that's not always possible. And so if that happens, then litigation is the next step. Do you follow the the entire litigation process on this? Or is, is, is there an end point? Is the end point finding the resolution? It depends upon the type of the case. So every case and uh, its facts, et cetera, will determine what we agree to do. So a client may come to us and we only will give that client's advice and counsel and that client's going to represent themselves in court. A client could come to us with very serious habitability issues. So let's say they've got raw sewage inside their unit, a very serious issue. We would, um, in that type of case, agree to represent the client 
Um, the case may start out in small claims court. We might handle the small claims court hearing for a student who's listening. This is a wonderful opportunity to have your own bench trial. It's very much like the bench trial that's simulated in trial advocacy. And of course, I teach in our trial advocacy program. It's very much like that type of experience where you question witnesses and you enter evidence. There's a judgment at the end of that hearing in small claims court. And it can be appealed to district court. So we may or may not then represent the client on appeal in district court. So, um, you know, the levels of representation will vary depending upon the merits of the client's case. We are not going to be able to represent every tenant in Raleigh, unfortunately. You know, we're only going to have eight students enrolled and two supervising professors. So we will have to have some limitations, but our goal is to to be able to help as many people as we possibly can. Within the parameters of, of reality, right? Because because right. uh, you guys want to provide correct counsel and ad, you know be zealous advocates for the people that come in. And that's not just a, a burn and churn type of idea. That's that's really sitting down with your client, understanding it. And that can take some time. And so that's why it's not just people coming in like an assembly line. That's right. That's right. Now, you, you mentioned small claims. Are there other small claims in type of civil law? that the clinic does deal with? We are not doing other types of small claims work. It is important to know that, yes, uh, cl- clients can go to small claims for all different types of things. The jurisdictional limit in small claims court in North Carolina is $10,000. So if someone has injured you and your damages are below $10,000, a person can go and file their own small claims case and represent themselves or hire counsel to do that. So, you know, if someone's... Um, took something, you know, maybe you contracted with someone to put in a driveway for you and that was going to be $6,000 and they didn't put the driveway in, you can sue them. But we do not handle those types of cases here. Okay. That was, uh, I know it popped up uh, earlier and what uh, different things, especially on like the PI uh, sort of scenario that you had mentioned that you guys don't do. But when you were talking about small claims, I was like, oh, I never thought about that. But what is on the horizon for the law clinic that you're really, really excited about that we haven't touched base on. The City of Raleigh Housing Justice Project is our newest newest initiative, and we're very excited about that. You know, we're going to roll it out in the fall. Our representation of clients will begin in September, and we are excited to see what that's going to look like. You know, our goal is always to emphasize quality, so um, our services may be a bit more limited until we see what quantity of work that we can handle while still providing quality representation. Our number one mission and goal is to make sure that students are receiving a really quality educational experience, that they are getting the type of experience that is going to serve them well in practice and serve their clients well. Um, I think we do a really good job of that here. You know, I was a partner at my law firm for many years and I trained associates. The level of supervision that we give to law students and the type of advice they get here is really hands-on and really high quality. I think they walk out of the law clinic ready to go to a law firm or into, you know, a DA's office or a PD's office or legal aid or wherever they're going to go and they're practice ready. Um, So, you know, we, in the past, we've done legal clinics throughout the state. 
We've particularly focused on serving rural underserved areas. Professor Meester, who will run our criminal law clinic, is continuing to partner with rural communities on driver's license expunction cases, or excuse me, driver's license restoration cases. So keep your eyes open to see if we're going to be doing some more um, legal clinics in North Carolina. How do people get in touch with the law clinic if they think that they need to talk to you guys? They will call our intake line, which is 865-4471. It's important for people to know that sometimes the intake line does have to close based on our wait list. So we are, we get a lot of phone calls and we have a lot of clients in our queue. So controlling that intake line can be really a challenge. We want to serve everybody, but we just don't have resources to do that. So call the intake line. If we are do, taking active intakes, it will walk you through that process. And you can talk with our office manager, Tina Brandon, who does all of our intakes. How do current students who are maybe prospective clinic uh, uh, participants, how do they get involved in the clinic if they want to sign up in the program or not? So we are a class that is listed on the course schedule, just like every other class, two L's and three L's can enroll in our clinic. It's also important to know that we run our clinic in the summer. So students who would like to take some summer school credits can take the clinic in the summer. I think it's a great thing to take in the summer because it's both academic credit credit and practical skills credit, right? So you can talk about this experience in future job uh, interviews. It is really rich practical training. So if you're wanting to spend your summer doing something that's really teaching you the kind of skills you're going to need to be a lawyer, it's a great option for you. How do people who don't need um, the community law clinic, the, the clinic services, how do they get involved if they want to help out or donate or anything of that? Can people do that if they uh, are so pleased? First of all, we're always happy for people to donate. There is a law school donation page where you can donate to Campbell Law School and designate the community law clinic. We run on um, uh, contributions from our community and from individuals and are always appreciative of gifts. Um, If students want to be involved in clinic work but not enrolled, we often partner with some of the pro bono projects for various different uh, types of legal clinics. So for example, the Expunction Pro Bono Project worked with us last year on two clinics uh, to provide expunction relief. So those students were able to do that work with us even though they weren't enrolled. It's possible that there will be a housing pro bono project. There is not currently one. We're in talks with the director of pro bono and student life about whether it makes sense to constitute a group to do housing pro bono so that they can work with us on our housing uh, initiative with the city of Raleigh. I would say to listeners, students, if you're interested in doing that, I would say contact Raven Byrne, who's the director of student life and pro bono and let her know you're interested. You guys have so much to do and it's such a blessing that this service is offered to people. So many people think that they, you know, they're, what is it? You're in a rock and a hard space, you know, or, or your back's against the wall. Well, the community law clinic could be there to help you. In addition to calling that number, is there another way that people can get a hold of you? No, that's the best way to do it. We do not have online setup. Perfect. Call that number folks and, uh, or just go onto Campbell Law's website and you can find more information about it there. To wrap all this up with a nice bow on it, we at Campbell Law like to lead with purpose. And so I'm going to ask you the question of what does leading with purpose 
mean to you? To me, leading with purpose means using the blessings and gifts that you've been given for the good and benefit of others. I talk a lot with law students about the extraordinary power that a law degree gives you. Um, you know, when you leave Campbell Law School with a Campbell Law JD and you become licensed after you pass the bar examination, you have extraordinary power. And I challenge students to use that power in a way that benefits your fellow man and your community. That's awesome. Professor, thank you so much for taking the time out of your, as we know, very busy schedule to talk to us at the Campbell Law Reporter. Uh, we can't say thank you enough for what you do and for your time. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. This is the Campbell Law Reporter. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform. This is the Campbell Law Reporter.